Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Presence of an intraninal aneurysm, a prior hemorrhage, venous outlet stenosis, deep location, and associated flow-related aneurysms are some of the qualitative features that can help classify an arterial venous malformation as high risk. But even after estimating risk based on these factors, management decisions can be difficult. Medical management alone with blood pressure control, high-risk behavior reduction, and routine surveillance may not be adequate to prevent an event. At the same time, Intervention, whether with resection, radiation, embolization, or a combination of these strategies, entails potential hazards of its own. In this episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the current methods for managing AVMs, as well as a look at what's on the horizon. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. I'm very pleased to have Dr. Nina Moore Join me for today's conversation. Dr. Moore is a neurosurgeon in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute's Cerebral Vascular Center. Nina, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you for having me. So, Nina, I know you do a lot of things uh, in neurosurgery, but today we'll sort of stick a little bit to uh, AVMs. Uh, But can you start by just telling our audience, because it's not all uh, neuro-related folks, what is an AVM? So an arterial venous malformation is an abnormal artery to vein connection. Um, Typically, blood flow goes through a large vessel to a smaller vessel to an even smaller vessel, and then finally to small capillaries that feed back into small venous uh, collection areas that feed into larger veins. An arterial venous malformation is actually an abnormal high flow connection between the artery to the vein, bypassing some of those smaller pathways. In the brain, this can be particularly dangerous, um, carrying about a 3% rupture risk per year, sometimes up to 9 to 10% if some of those high-risk features that you mentioned are involved. And my understanding is we can get AVMs in other part of our body, right? Just doesn't have to be in the brain. Correct. Yeah. So oftentimes we can also see these um, in the lung for certain sort of uh, genetic mutations. And we can also see them within facial AVMs, body AVMs, very, all the way through the, the, pretty much the entire body, you can find one. Mm-hmm. Um, in the brain um, in particular, because it's a fixed space, you know, if something were to bleed, it tends to be a little bit more worrisome. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like not to have my AVM diagnosed by having a bleed, but I guess, how would I know otherwise? Well, sometimes people present with headaches, uh, can have family history of blood vessel malformations. Um, another location in the body may trigger an investigation to look into the brain. Uh, seizures can be a source. Um, even some neurologic impairment may be considered uh, AVM steel phenomenon, where blood is actually shunted away from normal territories due to high flow going to one location. AVM complicated area with a lot of potential treatment options. Can you give us the lay of the land for the various types of treatments for this type of disorder? Well, fortunately, we do have a fair amount of treatment options. Um, Typically, you know, these are diagnosed initially with some non-invasive imaging and then we typically use a not like an invasive test like a cerebral angiogram to better understand what the AVM looks like. Most people's AVMs mo- are not the same as another person's. And so we really tailor treatment options based on the location and whether or not um, it's amenable to certain types of procedures. Our go-to standard is usually surgical resection. And sometimes uh, when we do a surgical resection, it can be safer to do preoperative uh, gluing of a vessel or 
um, blocking of a vessel called embolization. We do that with catheters. And then afterwards, surgical resection is to try to take the entire AVM out of the brain. Um, when it comes to other options, there are locations that are trying to embolize these AVMs entirely without surgery. Um, we found that it can carry a higher risk than surgical resection and sometimes gamma knife radiation or surgical radio, well, radio surgery. But um, there are locations that have successfully done this. It's just a question of, is it a safe technique? And not always is it a safe technique, just because there's a higher risk of potential rupture of the AVM during the treatment. So from my training many years ago, I remember the Spetzler-Martin classification for AVMs. Is that still used today or is that out of date or do you use different systems or it's still helpful or what? So we still use the uh, Robert Spetzler's um, grading scale. I think, you know, there have been modifications. Dr. Lawton modified his uh, grading scale um, in the recent past, but for the most part is one of the standard ways we, we evaluate AVMs. And what about risk factors for bleeding? Well, so aneurysms located inside the AVM can be a higher risk of bleeding. Um, if there's narrowing of the draining veins, which are already taking on more uh, fluid flow and pressure than they're used to, if that vessel narrows, it's kind of a, like obstructing a pipe. You know, you expect there's going to be backup of the fluid. And in that case, that can cause a rupture. You know, there are things that we do ourselves that can cause AVMs to rupture more likely. That's smoking, unfortunately, does increase people's vascular risks of bleeding, either from an aneurysm or an AVM. And then blood pressure being out of control can be a contributor as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious in your practice with patients that have AVMs, do they quit smoking or they don't? For the most part, we're pretty aggressive about treating the vascular malformations when we find one. Um, there was a recent study called the Aruba trial where there was a debate whether or not it was an important thing to try to um, surgically or endovascularly or with radiosurgery treat these AVMs or to let natural history kind of play out. In our own research here, you know, we found that our results were safer. And so typically we're pretty aggressive about taking out the AVM than letting it kind of rupture on its own. So what about uh, medical management for AVMs? That's a new interesting area of uh, research that's been ongoing. We've found out, especially in the a more recent New England Journal of Medicine paper, that brain AVMs do carry possibly a 50% risk or rate of genetic mutation, including the KRAS mutations. And you may be interested to, and maybe have talked with some of my colleagues about this, but there may be some new applications for some of these currently used oncologic medications that target KRAS mutations for potentially trying to shrink AVMs. In Europe, there's been a, a fair amount of interest in looking at body AVMs and face AVMs and using some medications that we've previously either abandoned or um, considered not applicable. Thalidomide is being used in some facial AVMs to shrink the AVM because it's thought that it's pruning some of the smaller vessels. And it has been shown to maybe potentially at, with a bolus injection plus or bolus administration and then lower maintenance rates, potentially be able to be safe to continue. And it decreases the rate of bleeding among facial AVMs. This and the use of propanolol, doxycycline, some of those are thought to potentially help in some of the vasculo like genic properties that happen with the AVM and even ischemia that's induced from either AVM changes. If we can in, in, impair that ischemia from happening with propanolol, potentially you can prevent it from rupturing, at least in body and facial AVMs. So this is kind of an area of interest for us looking at brain AVMs that potentially those could be applicable. Well, I, very interesting about the KRAS, you know, as you know, certainly uh, lung cancer 
and mutation abnormalities in lung cancer now is very uh, target-driven, and KRAS mutations are not uncommon in lung cancer patients, and it provides a very nice target to treat those patients. We did a study with thalidomide years ago with NF patients. As you know, you know, the uh, thalidomide is an anti-angiogenic type drug, and it was being looked at. It was given initially to young women uh, that were pregnant to help with nausea, and of course, it's an anti-angiogenic drug, so it turned out to be the worst drug uh, to give to somebody who was pregnant, so you then had uh, all these uh, children born without limbs uh, caused a, a massive problem. Uh, but it still has a utility, and it, I see that it's still uh, slinging around and, and shows up again. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, I don't know if any of these drugs have been able to completely reduce the AVM to nothing, but I think even if you could potentially shrink an AVM to a, a surgically manageable size, that may be of interest. We don't know how these will interact with the endothelium of the cerebral circulation. The vessels in the head are significantly smaller and thinner than the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's going to be an area that we have to be very cautious about when we start administering some of these medications in patients. And so that's a very interesting area of research coming up. You know, when I first started for multiple sclerosis, there was steroids and there was steroids and there was steroids. And now there's probably 30 drugs they can use to treat patients with MS. And I always kind of wonder when a patient comes in, how do they really decide which of these medications? And of course, I come to see you with my AVM and, you know, is it leave it alone? Is it do surgery on it? Is it glue it, coil it, embolize it, gamma knife it? give you a drug otherwise, how do, I, how do I decide? I mean, I'm sure it's difficult and you use some of these grading systems that tell you where the risk is, but um, patient preference as well. How, how are you deciding? It must be some long conversations. It is. I think there are certain locations in the brain that uh, make AVMs very amenable to surgery. If an AVM is located deep within a vital structure like the brainstem, surgical resection can be very uh, damaging to the surrounding area. And so something like radiosurgery, like here we use gamma knife, you know, can be a very eloquent way of taking care of the AVM. It doesn't give you a definitive cure right away, but over the course of three years, it has a decently high success rate in curing the AVM. Sometimes we have to, for large AVMs that are not resectable, we can do staged gamma knife, we can do staged embolization to try to take down some of the more dangerous feeders. Obviously, you know, if it's a very large AVM, sometimes we unfortunately can't do a whole lot. And so hopefully some of these new medications coming down the line will be able to give us some more options. From a, a planning standpoint, we are trying to determine ways of more accurately predicting who will need an AVM resection or treatment. Um, my lab is working on doing fluid structure modeling where we look at AVM mechanics, both fluid flow and the actual mechanical properties of these vessels to see if we can take a patient's specific anatomy um, do a mechanical model of it where we import based on their own kind of characteristics what the mechanical properties are for those vessels and also look at the fluid flow based off preoperative imaging to see if we can predict if they're potentially going to rupture and over what time frame. You know, my best friend growing up is a hydrogeologist and he's all into fluid flow dynamics. Maybe I, he does soil science. He's a hydrogeologist. Maybe I need to have him give you a call for you guys can do some fluid dynamics. That'd be great. That's what he's looking at all the time, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And how, how, 
How would you determine that in a patient? Uh, would you do an angiogram and look at the, inject something in and look at the flow? Or how would you determine the dynamics? Well, that's an interesting question. And it's kind of a complicated question because of the current limitations we have with some of the technology we have. So we've been creating 3D printed AVM models of a patient-specific AVM. That's something that we've kind of recently done here. And we're hooking that into a fluid flow model and trying to see if what the best imaging modality is for being able to predict fluid flow. We might only need the inlet parameters for a fluid structure model. And so being able to take something from one of the arteries that's feeding into the AVM may be enough. But from a standpoint, the ultimate goal is to be able to take a patient's preoperative imaging, whether it be 4D MRA or 4D diagnostic cerebral angiography, or even just 3D angiography and or 2D films, and be able to see if we can predict what that fluid flow is for that patient with pressure measurements in a 3D printed model and import that into the fluid structure model. Well, you know, I have had the odd patient that has come to see me uh, that's an engineer that will bring a model of their brain. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll get their imaging structure and they'll actually make a model and bring it into me. There's a lot of interest out there. Surgical techniques, is there anything revolutionary on the on the border or is surgery right now kind of where it is for these or is there anything new? Well, we are using more in our image guidance in AVM surgery. You know, there's more techniques that are becoming uh, useful in some of the microscopes that we're using Obviously, as we improve bipolars and the ability to evaluate flow through an AVM within surgery, that's helpful. Uh, Image navigation being incorporated into the microscope has been an advance. Being able to identify which vessels are going through the AVM but not involved in the AVM is also helpful. And so there are new imaging, like fluorescence imaging techniques within the microscopy world that we're able to kind of improve our technique. And what about interventional? Anything new there? Do you have any new devices that you're putting in or new glue or something? Well, so the glue has stayed relatively similar. There are always people working on trying to get the right concentration of glue. There are different techniques that are being used around the world as far as how to embolize an AVM if they're going to try to treat it completely. Sometimes they stick multiple catheters in. There are newer, smaller catheters that have balloons on them to allow a little bit more uh, direction of the embolization material than there were before. And so there are techniques that are being developed from an embolization standpoint to try to do this. Even cardiac arrest with fast pacing of the heart in order to inject the AVM to try to prevent the risk of bleeding is an option. You know, so there are new advances in embolization. I don't know if we're quite there yet to say it's a, as safe as some of the other options, but it's certainly a, a field that's progressing. So if I have a bleed, do I have to let it cool down before I can do something or do I do something right away? That's a good question. You know, I think we found that if an AVM is ruptured, we try to take care of the high risk feature if there's an aneurysm associated with it pretty quickly, uh, either through embolization or surgery. But if it's a, a lot of blood around the AVM, we may operate it on it sooner. But if you let it cool off for a little while while the clot reabsorbs, it may create a nice plane for resection which allows you to kind of protect normal brain without having to get into that as much. Do you see vasospasm in these? Um, you know, we see vasospasm in a lot of things that we typically wouldn't imagine we see spasm in. Uh, not as often. If there's a flow-related aneurysm associated and that ruptures, you can see more of a typical subarachnoid hemorrhage vasospasm appearance. We do have some dysregulation of the brain's fat, like vasoregulatory response when you do resect an AVM or even after a rupture potentially where the brain is not responding as it used to to blood flow. 
because you're, this area is getting such high blood flow that um, when there is some change in the regulation, the brain may not respond as normally as it would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, other areas of research going on with AVMs or have we kind of covered the... Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, we still don't understand necessarily some of the more cellular level changes that these AVMs undergo. So I think, you know, besides understanding the endothelium and what the genetics are within that tissue, as well as the mechanics, you know, there is still like in the in-between, there's definitely a lot of important information that's going to be gathered from looking at inflammatory markers and things like that from AVMs. And is this congenital or can I get one later in life? That is a good, interesting question. You know, there was a recent study, um, I think it was out of South Korea, where they were looking at whether or not this annual risk of rupture indicated whether or not people actually had a congenital AVM. The current thought amongst the majority of people is that it is a congenital problem, but there have been patients that perhaps get de novo AVMs later in life because it's more... potentially explains better the annual risk of rupture. And so I guess we're still kind of a little bit in the the woods as far as understanding exactly how AVMs start. It could be the genetic mutations need another hit before it, you know, occurs, or they're small enough and start growing and you don't identify them early. So, you know, we see someone has a brain metastasis, we do a CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. Someone has an AVM, maybe the incidence is too low, it doesn't make sense to look in other organ systems. Should we, or is the incidence too low unless there's some underlying family history? You know, I think a lot of AVMs present a little later in life, so perhaps this is the last one that's found, or it's incidentally found. You know, if it's seen in a younger patient, I think it's probably worthwhile to evaluate them pretty extensively. If there's other family history or there's other symptoms that seem like they may be related I'm always on the air on the side of safety and try to screen my patients a little more thoroughly if I think there may be something else going on. I, I look at the brain obviously as a high risk area. Management of AVMs and other parts of the body, a completely different disease or? Well, I think we're finding out there's more similarities than we maybe know. You know, I think um, we tend to treat with endovascular care a little bit more aggressively some of the body and the facial AVMs. I think that's you know, you can potentially surgically resect things, but I think, you know, those areas tend to be embolization and like radiosurgery, you know, as good options. If it is small enough to be resected and it's in a location that can easily be resected, potentially it will be. But for the most part, I don't know if the fear of rupture is as bad as it is for in the brain. Well, Nina, it seems like a real exciting uh, time in the field. I, I do do some gamma knives, so I, do, uh, I don't treat any AVMs, but I do get to see some AVMs being treated at time, although I don't get to see all the others that are uh, being managed. Uh, but I, I love uh, your passion and your interest in the things that you're doing, and, and uh, I'm sure it makes for a very rewarding career, and we're glad you joined us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.com clevelandclinic.org slash Nero or follow us on Twitter at CLE Clinic MD, all one word. And thank you for listening.